Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On Commons People this week, it's Brexit Hell Week. The hardline Eurosceptic views of the Benites on the Labour front bench and the right-wing nationalists in our party are a minority in this parliament. Is universal credit another poll tax? I resigned over this uh, uh, over two years ago. And why do ministers keep making things up? We now see 1.9 million more children in good and outstanding schools compared to 2010. Hello and welcome to Commons People, HuffPost's politics podcast. I'm Ned Simons and I'm joined, as always, by Paul War. Hi, Paul. Hello. And Rachel Wearmouth. Hi, Rachel. Hello. So it's Brexit Hell Week, apparently, although every week is sort of Brexit Hell Week. Um, we're heading towards the summit in October. Um, Tory Brexiteers are in a mood. The DUP is threatening to bring down the government. Um, so everything's going fine. Here's, uh, first of all, a clip of Sir John Major this morning saying that Theresa May's bastards are even more bastards than his bastards. That was an entirely private comment. I should never have made it. I apologise for making it, even though it was true. They were bastards, as you call them. But uh, their behaviour was, was, was pretty intolerable, but not nearly as intolerable as the way the present Prime Minister is being treated. So to start with, Paul, um, where are we now? What's the current state of play with the talks? Well, uh, in theory, next week is going to be a big week because uh, the EU summit starts on Wednesday and Thursday. Theresa May is going to be forced to sort of wait outside the room on Wednesday night while all the EU27 have their dinner. Uh, She's going to hang around. She's going to be there for Thursday's Mm. meeting. And there's a growing expectation that um, amongst some of her team, that actually they could make some progress. No one is suggesting there'll be a massive breakthrough next week, although, you know, you never mm. know. There's very, very secret talks being on this week, and there's going to be more intensive talks on Monday. It, it's very possible Dominic Raab could arrive in Brussels on Monday and sort of finalise some of this mm. stuff. Then there's a cabinet meeting on Tuesday morning, and then the rest of the week will, will follow that. The question is whether or not this will be a staging post to a final deal or whether there's even a chance of a proper final deal being done now. And there's a lot of obstacles, uh, obviously, to be overcome. When, so when we talk about progress, what do we, you know, what do we mean by that? Is, there, is it Northern Ireland border particularly? Or? Yeah, I mean, the, the big outstanding issue that Brussels is really fixed on is how do you sort out this conundrum of the Northern Irish border and making sure that somehow Britain... Um, doesn't ruin its sort of common rule book plan for the rest of its trade with the European Union going forward after Brexit. And it's a really difficult one because, you know, the DUP have been digging in saying nothing can divide the, the Northern Ireland from the rest of mainland UK and down the Irish Sea. They don't want any extra checks. But there's various sort of clever ways around it. And the latest plan today seems to be this idea, some some wheeze within Brussels, you could have something called dual certification, which means you could have a sort of parallel system for Northern Ireland down and the UK. Mm. Uh, uh, that's one idea. There's also the other idea, which is that basically 
you know, the DUP to buy them off, the, the government are going to say, well, actually, yeah, we'll have this sort of arrangement which will affect the whole of the UK, Northern Ireland and the rest of Britain. Um, and that will be some kind of rule taking that actually, or rather checks that, that some Brexiteers might not like. But so exactly. either way, it's difficult for three. I mean, it's a way out of it. I mean, are the DUP going to back down, Rachel? I mean, they, they seem to they care about this a lot. <coughs> My sense they? would be no. Yeah. <laughs> um, Arlene Foster reportedly sent, uh, spent like 30 minutes with Michelle Barnier this week mm. and came out and was absolutely furious and more adamant than ever that they're not going to make any kind of movement on the Northern Ireland border whatsoever. Um, and I just can't see them backing down in any way, well, shape she, or form. She, the thing is, the question is, you know, how how belligerent will she be? Because this morning, she, the, the TV cameras in, in Brussels doorstepped on her way out from, from Brussels. She was getting in a taxi and she was asked the question, um, do you trust Theresa May? And she didn't ask, answer the question. And she said, basically, it's a nice morning, isn't it? It's a nice morning. Um, and, <laughs> so, and, no, they, <laughs> and they tried again, you know, what? because the DUP abstained instead of voting with the government last night on an, an obscure thing called the Agriculture Bill. And that was seen as a sort of shot across the government's mm. bows. But within that debate, you know, there was a, a DUP MP who said, look, if we have no deal, it will decimate the lamb industry in Northern Ireland. And that sort of is why Number 10 are quite confident. Mm -hmm. They know that no deal is a terrible option for Northern Ireland and for the DUP. So both sides can play hardball. The other point to remember here is that, I mean, this, was, this is going out before a few ministers in the cabinet are going to meet this afternoon. This is on Thursday afternoon. Um, they're going to meet and discuss the next steps in this whole process, you know, the Northern Ireland box backstop and the other remaining issues. Um, now, Theresa May, it's interesting that she's decided to divide up the cabinet into these little subgroups. Mm. So it's almost as if she's getting a group of Remainers together and saying, look, you'll be OK, and a group of Brexiteers together and saying, you'll be OK, and, and buying them off one by one. But... It, but it does that does, work though? Because it kind of works in the in the process of it and reassuring each side that what they want will be okay. But at some point there will be yeah, written down. Well, that's the point, and that's why you know when she did do the checkers, you know, she put yeah. her foot down at checkers at that, that famous meeting where you know David Davis and then Boris Johnson in a delayed reaction thought they couldn't stand it. Um, but I was talking to a cabinet minister who said everyone talks about checkers as if it was this great breakthrough moment. The real checkers breakthrough moment was in February when there was a so small subgroup of the cabinet, similar to one that's meeting today. It's called the Strategy and Negotiation Committee, basically agreed on this word alignment. Mm. And what was briefed after that meeting by some Brexiteers was that, quotes, divergence has won the day. We can diverge from Europe in, in terms of its rules and regulations. We can be a free nation. Actually, that didn't happen. What happened was that alignment won the day. And that meeting was crucial in setting the terms mm. for then what was the Mansion House speech by the, the Prime Minister. And since then, it's been a constant process where the Brexiteers have been on the back foot. So it, when people talk about checkers, they should remember what happened at the original checkers meeting. And people there say to me that actually the reason it worked because it was a small group and in a small group you can mm. have a more substantive discussion instead of having 20 odd people around the table they're all making grandstanding points instead you have a more constructive discussion and you can thrash things yeah. out and Dominic Raab came down really hard on um, Brexiteers in the Commons this mm. week and kind of said yeah. you know Canada is not on the table it's just not going to happen and that's a, a shortcut that's to a no really deal good point I mean he's a valuable and invaluable to the Prime Minister in, but, in fending off all those Brexiteers because they know he's one of them wasn't and, there a good in that debate that. where, uh, where, was it right that he said when he sat down, like, to turn was on the minister? Was that too much? Was that too much <laughs> after he'd slapped down <laughs> Steve, Steve Baker? Baker? I know. So you can tell us sort of, they want to be strong, but they don't want to... I know. I mean, if we look, those Brexit Tories, you know, we came back from conferences and straight away out the traps, you had 
Baker saying there were still 40 rebels. You had Mark Harper article in the Telegraph saying the deal won't go, won't get voted through. Then you had David Davis with his letter to Tory MPs sort of saying the same thing he always says, but with a bit more sort of like jazziness yeah, about it. Fair, it's, but, you know, it's been quite an interestingly coordinated campaign. And Morden as well not saying she's specifically yeah, back yeah. I mean, if you look at all the points in the week, Penny Morden knew what she was doing, not backing checkers. Mm. Um, David Davis knew exactly what he was doing, releasing that letter to all the Tory MPs this week. Then you had Boris Johnson tweeting off the back of it mm. and the DUP, you know, setting off this sort of landmine where they, they basically, pardon pun, where they, <laughs> where they said basically, look, we could vote down the budget and we could vote down other legislation. Now, the thing is, in a strange way, someone said to me, this could all be from the DUP, part of a grand conspiracy where it's aimed not at number 10, but aimed at Brussels. And, and it helps number 10 say, look, Theresa May, I could say to Brussels, look, I can't possibly deliver some massive compromise because I won't be allowed. My government will fall. The DUP mm. are talking so hardball. Please help me out here. Now, Brussels, they're wily negotiators. They probably know that trick. But uh, let's see. It looks like both sides officials are trying to come to some compromise so kind of another thing this week that's kind of this idea that maybe what up to 30 labor mps could vote for may's deal because they're too scared of the alternative being no deal um here's a clip of ken clark in pmqs making that point and saying that the prime minister should ignore all the kind of right-wing brexiteers in her party uh, mr speaker it's obvious that the biggest task facing the prime minister this winter is firstly to obtain a compromise agreement with the other 27 European governments on the terms of our withdrawal and then to win the approval of this House, a majority in this House, for that same agreement or something like it in a meaningful vote on the terms of our departure. Uh, does she equally accept that the maths makes it obvious that that majority can only be obtained if the agreement retains the support of the pro-European Conservative backbenchers in this House and also wins the support of a significant number of Labour backbenchers, pro-European backbenchers, on the other side of the House, which would reveal that the hardline Eurosceptic views of the Benites on the Labour front bench and the right-wing nationalists in our party are a minority in this Parliament. Will she therefore proceed courageously on that basis in the formidable task that lies ahead of her. How realistic is, is this, Rachel, the idea that l enough Labour MPs will vote for the deal to overcome the number of Tory rebels? I think um, they would have to be extremely confident to be safe from deselection in their own seats. Uh, I just don't see someone like Kevin Jones, who I think gave, gave a quote to the FT on this. I don't see him... Um, missing an opportunity to bring down the government if it if he's presented with it. I suspect it might be a little bit more about trying to lull the Tory whips into a sense of false false sense of security. I think there's an element of that going on where um, it's a sort of rope-a-dope technique where the Tory whips are desperate to get Labour people into their column. There's no question. And some Labour people are saying, all right, if you're that desperate, maybe we'll keep you, know, keep you under that uh, false sense of security. But I was told, far from there being 30, that it could be a maximum of six or seven that side with the government. And of that seven, you're looking at the hardcore, the four that everyone knows who the levers are, you know, mm. Kate Hoey, Frank Field, etc., Graham Stringer. You know, you've got, you've got the hardcore, but then you've got 
two or possibly three who are former Remainer Labour MPs who in very heavily vote leaving constituencies. Like just Callan Flynn. Yeah. Kind of. Exactly. And possibly Gareth Snell, possibly mm. Ruth Smith. You're looking at their seats where they are really, really determined that their voters, their majorities depend on a strong message from them that, look, I haven't betrayed you. So, you know, it's possible. But even then... When push comes to shove, you know, the idea of bringing down the government is so tempting mm. uh, for any Labour MP. Speaking of bringing down the government, if not the government, what about the Prime Minister herself? Does does she survive um, beyond Brexit Day, do we think, at the moment? Or Well, there's a lot to talk any, any about, you know, that? if she does get, let's be honest, if she gets through um, November and she somehow manages to win the vote, then, of course, she will then be in a position of a maximum sort of triumph, which you say, look, all the naysayers said this couldn't be done. I did it. No one else could do this. And she makes a really strong case that no one other Tory could actually have held together that fractious mm. coalition. You can't think of many people who'd, who'd actually managed to hold together the Tory party at the moment. And so she could then be quite confident and say, look, I've done the most the difficult thing. Then, of course, back me for the rest of, of the parliament. But I think that's her moment of maximum danger as well, her maximum triumph, because having got Brexit out of the way, then really the Tories party might think, OK, well, now we need someone who's a bit more voter friendly. Thank yeah, you very what's much. The point? And you get them Brexit, in early. But you've you done Brexit. Action? Fine. You've done the hard bit. Yeah. Can we do the easy bit now, which is actually trying to pump some money into the economy? The economy's probably going to get better. Austerity is going to end. And so whoever is a Tory leader who is inheriting that scenario and thinking that maybe we've seen Pete Corbyn and, and possibly, you know, the economy and jobs could still pick up then... Who knows? I think like, and so talking about sort of, you know, the next election, domestic politics, one of the, the big thing this week as well has been universal credit. Um, and John Major on the Tate programme this morning had this warning that it could be the Tories' second, second poll tax. Um, and also um, HuffPost story today, we revealed that 580,000 people could lose out from benefit claimants because of changes to universal credit. Um, here's uh, Ian Duncan Smith on today's programme defending it but saying, you know, still, it needs more money put into it. And one of the problems is tax credits. There's a kind of uh, a, a vague sense that somehow there was something better. £6 billion of debt was carried on the back of tax credits into universal credit. Okay, now, let's address so the problems of universal credit. On the issue here, he's talking about a policy issue. I resigned over this uh, uh, over two years ago, which was, as it was rolled out, there was a decision to take money out of it uh, so that it wouldn't meet the same exact levels uh, as it would have done under the existing benefits, particularly tax credits. So number 10 appeared to kind of hint they might be some kind of rowback on the previous policy. Yeah, what well, exactly? Well, it's interesting. I asked them about it, Duncan Smith's comments at the, the number 10 lobby briefing. And what was interesting was the reply, because I asked it explicitly, will this mean that the universal credit claimants could get more money in the budget to sort of cushion the blow of the of the changeover? And the direct answer to that direct question was, well, the Prime Minister's in listening mode. The Prime Minister's listening um, to concerns and she wants to just see how things are going. And we've always said that this is a sort of test and return type approach that we're doing. Um, And I thought there was enough of a hint there that actually Philip Hammond, if it is the end of austerity, if he does have a bit more cash, not only will it go to the NHS, but and other lots of pressures that are on his plate, um, he might just give some money to Universal Credit in terms of an extra cushion. They know they've got to do something because, you know, it's quite toxic. If people like John Major talk about poll tax, if Gordon Brown's talking about riots, then, you know, you're capturing the, the public mood and, you know, midterm, it's the last yeah, thing. Yeah, and Labour also sense that, haven't they? Well, well, Labour have said that um, 
uh, it has to go, but they haven't said what they'd replace it with. Or um, and then they talked about a cross-party um, consultation on what else they could get to work. But I just think Universal Credit's name is dirt. You know, like in communities, everyone absolutely hates this benefit now. And I just don't know how she does turn it around. It's like such a behemoth. It's been rolled out in different parts of the country at different times. Um, and it just seems that I don't know what reform exactly would look like. Is well, it too difficult. late to, to, to ditch it, though? I mean, Well, I think too... it might be too late to ditch it, just in sheer organisational terms. Mm. Because although Labour have now finally come to position where they say they will dump it, unpicking a benefit that is streamlining six benefits and putting them all into one benefit and then to unpick that and divide them again into six different benefits it's going to be an administrative nightmare mm. especially because as Rachel says it's rolled out in different places at different times you'd have to sort of roll back what you've already done mm -hmm. so I think in a strange way it is a juggernaut that can't be turned around but what you can do is sort of reduce the impact of the juggernaut mm. and if they do have transition, more transitional relief for people more guarantees it comes down to money at the end of the day in Duncan Smith the reason he's, he's so upset about this is because the reason he quit, don't forget, is quit because George Osborne wanted to slash more money from welfare. And he said, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Duncan Smith is one of the evangelicals who says, actually, this reform is about getting people into work. It's not about saving money. And the Treasury never thought really it was about, they weren't that evangelical. They just thought, right, can we have the savings? Thank you very much. And, you know, Duncan Smith, you can do your thing, but we'd, we mm -hmm. really like this tenting billions that you're going to save us. So George Osborne, v. Ian Duncan Smith, way back then, wasn't resolved and it's still not resolved in this whole issue. And that's still playing out. And I think that if the Treasury, the Treasury is not going to give billions more, but they might give a bit more money that sort of eases the impact. Mm -hmm. And Let's see whether or not on the ground that makes any difference to communities. Um, another thing this week uh, which we spotted was um, Labour accused the Prime Minister of attempting to deliberately mislead Parliament, which is quite a big accusation. Um, it was over kind of claims about schools. Rachel, yeah. what... What did the Prime Minister say and why do Labour say it's not true? Right, well, in short, um, the government has gone to war with its own statistics watchdog. <laughs> Again. <laughs> um, there are 1.9 million more children in good and outstanding schools since 2010 is what the government has been claiming. Mm. Um, so David Norgrove, who is the chair of the UK Statistics Authority, wrote to the Department for Education this week and said that figure, that claim does not paint a full picture. It does not take into account that there are so many more children now than there mm. were in 2010. And it doesn't take into account there's been these big sweeping changes to um, the offset inspection system. So um, now a school can only... Um, be subject to an inspection if it if its data triggers um, in that, right. you know, the exam results, for example, would fall dramatically and couldn't be explained. That would trigger an, an inspection. Otherwise, they don't get inspected. So there are thousands of schools which haven't been inspected for years. Um, here's, actually, let's play the clip of the Prime Minister in the Commons. With the extra £1.3 we've put in this year and next, per-pupil funding is being protected in real terms. I recognise, I recognise the pressures that schools are under, but I also recognise that we now see 1.9 million more children in good and outstanding schools compared to 2010. And part of that, part of that is because of the reforms we've put forward into education, including the free schools and academies, free schools and academies, which the Labour Party would abolish. Now, on these kind of things, Norgrove accuses ministers of misleading all the time. And nothing seems to really come of it. Do, they think they just, do they just think, oh, we'll just get away with it? 
Well, I think the the problem is that it looks bad. They know it looks bad. Not necessarily to the public, but they know it looks really bad within Whitehall. They know mm. senior civil servants really respect this kind of thing when they get a, a letter from the UK Stats Authority. That they, it sort of it demeans the sense of public service if you're seen to be lying. Mm. Uh, not dissembling, but actually lying, which is what this actually really sounds like essentially i mean there were a couple of other claims that they'd made as well in terms of uh, something nick gibbs said about school standards um they'd kind of been very selective about which information they chose and i think norgrove kind of said basically what you're doing could undermine public trust in statistics and heinz wrote back and said you know um, we've used a different methodology and what have you, but it's kind of it's that they're not giving the full picture and they're choosing to present something more positively than the reality is. And I think what it what what it will really jar with is all these stories about um, teachers raising money for their schools and not being able to mm. pay for certain equipment. So it's not going to be the reality. And I think ultimately the point Norgrove is making is that people will see that and they'll see what you're trying to say. Yeah. And that does that does not help with trust. And it's like universal credit in a way. The only way out of a political problem is by being honest about it. And if you if you are deliberately spinning and using all the tricks that you used to accuse New Labour of, of mm. spinning the figures and burying bad news, then you undermine not just your party, but the sort of wider political sort of atmosphere, I think. And that that's what's dangerous about it. Um, so kind of every week in the past, I would take kind of piss out of Owen for no. doing really bad quizzes and now I'm doing this it's really really hard so if CAM's Owen Bennett is listening which I'm sure he is um, could you send me in any kind of pre-prepared quizzes you've done because it's a bit of an effort well, it's funny you should say that Ned, I doubt actually. very much Owen will have pre-prepared them. I think he made them up I think he a better job of pretending that they were like well the, the late Owen Bennett as I should call him um, <laughs> lately of this parish who, for whom we, we say many thanks for your a sterling work on this podcast. Um, he sent me a message. He says, actually, here's a message for... Does it say Ned's a much better host? It, well, <laughs> not quite. He says, can every quiz be about Michael Gove so I can actually learn something for my next book? <laughs> Which is brilliant, Owen, isn't it? It's about self-promotion. It's about his next book. Yeah, it's yeah, about, yeah. you know, he's not really, really asking for a quiz. I was going to do a quiz based on Owen's previous books, but I've obviously not read them. So that's not <laughs> going to be a thing. That's hard. Um, there is a quiz. Um, this week, Nikki Haley resigned as the US's ambassador to the United Nations, yep. which is kind of unexpected, presumably because she's going to run for president in 2024 or something. Yep. So I've done a quiz about the UN. Um, I'm going to give you a country, and I want you to tell me the kind of decade that they joined the United Nations. Oh, okay. Everyone assumes everyone, that every country joined when it started in 1945, but it's oh. not true. Oh. If you get the precise year, you get some kind of bonus point. I don't really know what the scoring system is. <laughs> um, so what... North Korea. When did was it, it join? You know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, Oh, so decades, okay. Mm, North Korea. Is North Korea in the UN? Oh, yes. Hmm. Well, it was created. Oh. I'm going to go 1970s. I'm going to say 1960s. 90s, 91. Wow. Ah. Okay, uh, Israel. Hmm. Well, surely it would have joined quite quickly, wouldn't it? So, 1940s. 1950s. 49. So, oh. close. Um, how about Vietnam? Vietnam. 1980s. The unified Vietnam. Mm. Um, 80s. Yeah, 80s. 77, oh, which is quite close right, okay. to the war. Okay, I'll do one more. Uh, Switzerland. 
Little Neutral Switzerland. Well, it wasn't in originally. That's strange, isn't it? Well, it might have been. Mm, 90... <laughs> it's a trick. Yeah, I was going to say, is this a trick question? 1960s. <laughs> um, I'm going to go crazy and go the noughties. Yeah, 2002. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they so don't like sort of any kind of international... That's bizarre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously the UK joined in 1945. Um, wow. That was my really bad quiz. There and we that's go. also Thanks, the end Ned. of the podcast. Owen lives on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.